All right, Inappropriate Earl is back. You know, we're back to our once-a-week schedule, you know, and like I've said many times before, uh, sometimes I have four in a week, sometimes I have one every two weeks. Uh, it's hard to uh, get people to come and sit on the Skakel couch because a lot of them know what type of activity has happened on this couch. So they could do a CSI uh, season on this couch, if you know what I'm saying. But uh, today I have a legend of comedy. I mean, you know, if you do comedy for more than you know six months you're in it for the right reasons this man's like a 30-year vet was mitch hedberg's right-hand man and like mitch hedberg you know is maybe one of if not the most respected and revered comics of all time i mean you ask any comic who their favorite comic is or one of their favorites you always hear hedberg's name and uh, unfortunately he's no longer with us but this man's going to give us some good stories through being his number one opener i can give people good rob schneider stories but that's not what this podcast is about today put your hands together guys for really a dude who i've tried to get on this podcast many times before but he's here today mr richard chastler thanks man it's good to finally be sitting on top of a plastic sheet on top of your couch yeah these couches look like the couches in the uh, boys in the hood uh, home of uh Cuba Gooding. Dude, you know. you know you could spray these with something, shine a black light on it, and it would look like a constellation. If you spray this with black light, it would turn into a purple couch. Uh, <laughs> purple rain, purple couch. You're saying the size of the couch with the size of the screen, there's some pretty big porn activity going on. on this I don't watch porn. Really? And I, I hate doing jokes, on the, my jokes on the podcast, but I really don't because uh, even though it looks like I produce it, uh, i just not into the graphic nature of seeing a woman's vagina in 3D, high def. Well, that's where porn has gotten good, my friend. I disagree. Well, but. hold on. Amateur porn, where there is no more high def, 3D, four camera shoots. It's kids in their college dorm room. I just don't... It's uh, a little more sexy. I mean, a woman... It, a wo a woman is, whether there's a God up there or not, whoever created women, fat, skinny, tall, short, I, it's just the female body to me is just unbelievable. Agreed. Uh, a male body, like I have a great body for a comic. Uh, we all believe that, by the way, and some of us jerk off to you. I'm sure they do. Yeah. Uh, Jason Stewart. Um, uh, Jeff Scott. Jeff Scott. <laughs> um, I don't know if Ty Rivera does, but, uh, and, you know, I'm sure a few female comics diddle their bane to my body. Which sh they should be. You've worked hard to be that godlike. Well, I'm very insecure. So, you know, abs make up for it. And not really. <laughs> to be completely honest with you, I'm just, I'm like Christian Bale in American Psycho. I, I really just, I'm just there. That's a hilarious comparison. There's that scene where he's going over his skincare regimen. Right. In the morning, I wear an olive mask with no alcohol because alcohol dries your skin. That's me. <laughs> That's hilarious. And my hatred of my coworkers is what his hatred of his coworkers was. Right. I don't like a lot of comics, but that's another podcast. So we are here today. I mean, how long have you been doing stand-up? Honestly, I... Uh... I had my 30-year anniversary this past February, so this February it'll be 31 years I've been doing stand-up comedy. I mean, I've been doing it 16, yeah. so it's mind-blowing to me that you've been doing it double, because I, I feel like a veteran. 
Yeah, 16 years, you should definitely feel like a veteran. I mean, you know, you're half, you're, that's probably a third of your comedy life. Yeah, I mean, uh, I had to go to therapy to start comedy because I didn't have the uh, balls to uh, do it. I was very scared. Uh, you know, it's funny. I had no problem getting up on stage the first time to do it, but it took me 20 years to be able to get me. My Achilles heel was that I couldn't get this guy on the stage. You know, I started as an actor. I was on a soap opera when I first started. So um, I, I was acting like a stand-up comic for the first five years I was doing it. Hey, how you guys do? You know, like, right. uh, that's what I thought. And it was like 1986 when I started. So there weren't even a lot of comics, you know? And that was the beginning of the comedy boom. Or maybe not the beginning, Definitely. but maybe the... Uh, Beginning of the prime era. No question about it. I was, and everyone was accessible. I mean, I was learning from Rich Jenny and Paul Mooney and Sam Kinison and like every Monday night at the comedy store, Sam would go on in the main room after his show, me, him, Schubert, uh, <clears throat> guy named Randy Chervitz, they called Sparky, bunch of guys would all go up to the house, which is now Paulie's house, which was mid the house Mitzi owned around the corner up on Queens Road. Which is up for sale. Uh, it was just put on the market, uh, I think, this week. My guess, five and a half mil, maybe. Uh, well, it was a, a great uh, chronological article of the price of this house. It was sold, I think, in 88 by the Shores for like 700000 Right. And then two years later, flipped for 900000 And then... Uh, like five years later for 1.5 and it's now on the mark for a little, a little over three. Yeah. Oh, phenomenal. But we used to party in that house every Monday night with Sam and you, you never knew who was going to show up. Steve Pearl. Like it was just a, but everybody was there, you know, it was just, there was just no, it wasn't this influx of just comics that, and I hate to say it like this, that were, I don't want to say that don't matter because everybody matters, but that weren't, you know, back then it was literally like everybody was making a mark. And what, it, it seemed like back then there were fewer comics. And so the competition was much more fierce. And there were fewer TV shows doing comedy on TV. I mean, now it's like TV is still a big deal. I would love to get on uh, The Tonight Show or Fallon right. or, or Conan. But I don't think it makes you what it did back then when basically it was just Carson and uh, evening at the improv right and uh <laughs> i mean i don't i think merv griffin was done by then so it was really two or three shows and that's it letterman when letterman got his show it was really carson and letterman and evening at the improv and then all of a sudden there was this what killed the boom was the shows all of a sudden you got comedy express comedy on the road comedy in your pants comedy in baked beans J mexican comics jewy jew comics and there were 900 tv shows on and people didn't have to pay 15 dollars and two drink minimum so all of a sudden comedy clubs started closing i remember two years in a row like 1993 i think it was there was something like 340 clubs nationwide closed and the following year like another 400 so it was like 700 clubs total in two year span went out of business. And it's, it's very much like I'm a lover of eighties metal, you know, everyone right. knows that Bon Jovi, Rat, right. Poison, Quiet Riot. And I think the same thing happened where like you take a band like Rat, they were huge. So then you had copycat versions of Rat trying to mimic them. And then you had copycat versions of the copycat versions. And it was the same thing. Like everyone wanted to be dice. Right. 
Kennison, Hedberg. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many Hedberg uh, clones I've seen, you know, the one-liners. He tells me all the time, man, Chastley, you got to tell them to stop. And, you know, it's like the copycat versions of the rats and Motley Crue's. It ain't good. It really is not good. And it's really an insult not only to yourself, but to the art form. Like, if you even gave a shit about, like, why you were decided to be a painter, because you can substitute anything. It's an art form. Then you're really, you're disrespecting something that's really bigger than you. I mean, I was guilty of that when I first started. I'm a huge Stephen Wright fan. And, uh, you know, Robert Schimmel, uh, you know, and uh, I wouldn't say I was stealing from them, but I was definitely mimicking them. So, But your energy is very, is very um, docile and you have a very dry sort of wit and delivery about you. And I could see how not even trying, you could fall into that rhythmic, almost a cross between I bought some instant water the other day. I didn't know what to mix it with. And that shimmel sort of, you know, uh, you know, what's wrong with fucking your daughter's teacher? You know, like there's, in other words, there's a real cross there and you kind of fall right into that apex. Because that, he does a joke. I, I don't know if it was his first comedy CD, but it was the first one I bought of uh, checking in at the hotel and Calling the concierge going, hey, where can that guy get fucked around? <laughs> hey, try the gift shop. I mean, that is such a joke. I would, I mean, I'm. You're pissed you didn't write it. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that is a joke that is so like in my wheelhouse of like the style. I'm definitely not funny enough to write his kind of material. But uh, so I don't blame people for being influenced by Hedberg. But I've seen just straight out. Ripoff artists. Yeah, which you're right. It does. It. Not only is it disrespectful to his memory, but it's disrespectful to your talent. Right. If, if you have it. It, it. Exactly. You know, and I can't tell you when I'm on the road, I get stuck with opening acts if I don't bring them. How many times? I, I, I've literally said to, like, my openers after the first night, hey, listen, man, um, I don't know if you ever saw the uh, the Lloyd Benson debate where he told Dan Quayle he was no Jack Kennedy, but I knew Mitch Hedberg, Senator. And you are no Mitch Hedberg. Oh, that was like, I've had a few sets where I felt exactly like Dan Quayle. It's <laughs> such a great clip when you look at Quayle going, fuck, he got me. So good, too, you know? It's like when I was roasting Sarah Tiana on Roast Battle on right. live TV. She got me so good with a child molesting joke. Oh. Because, uh, you know, it's been rumored that I have a uh, love of younger women. It's not rumored. It's true, right? We all think, I mean. Legally. Right. Legal. They're yeah, all legal. Yeah. I feel like the colonel in Boogie Nights right now. I don't touch them, Jack. They're just so cute. <laughs> uh, and she got me so good with it. My thing on Roast Battle is rebuttals. I'm very good at just coming up with a quick reply. And I right. have nothing. And live TV, I'm like. Oh uh, man, that's like against the ropes and stunned. And, and I had no rebuttal. I think I uh, it's just it was I felt like Dan Quayle. I've seen you a roast battle. I mean, I know that you're like you got a very quick mind and you're really good coming back, that's for sure. That was the first time I've ever been stumped and it just happened to be on live TV. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Welcome to Hollywood. And right. you were instrumental in me preparing for roast battle because at Sal's comedy hole, uh you uh, were uh, mentoring me and some jokes. and uh, I remember that was before uh, Montreal. 
Yeah, it was, uh, I don't mean to brag, but me and Richard were on a hot show at Sal's Comedy. Very, very tough club to get into in Los Angeles. In fact, it's it's so exclusive, no one's actually even ever heard of it. And let me say this. I'm not throwing shade at Sal. Sal has really been one of the nicer club owners that I've ever come across to me. He was always nice to me, would always put me up, and he was always smiling, even though he was losing tremendous amounts of money, which made me believe that Sal's Comedy Hall was a episode of the shield with the armenian money train a dishwasher for cash as you might want to say you know i'm just i you know i've never seen a guy so happy losing so much money it's difficult to pay rent on melrose serving a dollar 25 cannoli that's all i'm saying (laughs) (laughs) i was like but he had a good thing going because rogan would do a weekly show there or whenever he was in town right pack it out and that was when the comedy and i I don't want to get too into a room that probably 90% of the audience has never been in, but in the in the front room, at, back in the day, there was like poles right in front of the stage. Like, yeah. Not a good layout. No. It's not, I mean, it's, it could be a great comedy room, but uh, it's the booming and the echoey and the poles and the obstructed view, and it's kind of like trying to watch a game at Wrigley with no ticket. Right, but other than that, it's a good room. Fantastic. Now, you've been in hundreds of thousands of rooms. I mean, oh it's scary God. between the two of us. We've probably done uh, five thousand shows. Easy, hundred, probably thousands of rooms. Yeah. Would you say that Sal's Comedy Hall is a top five, or I should say a bottom five room in terms of the layout, the business sense? Not even close. It's up there. Sal, no, Sal's Comedy Hall compared to thing experiences I've had in bad rooms, Sal's isn't even touch some of the stuff I've seen. Dude, I did a show in Traverse City, Michigan. And a comedy club that had a stage that was put up on top of four milk crates. And if you moved, it could slip off the milk crates. No kidding. And it was a Thursday, Friday, Saturday room. Who books it? It was Yoder. <laughs> oh, I thought that might have been a treble we're getting. No, no. That was actually John Yoder gig way back in the day. And it was terrible because... The first time I did it, I was a feature act. And the guy who owned the club, Jack, I forgot his name, took me to the condo. And uh, the condo is the house that the club owns, for those of you who don't know, where you are lucky enough to get some free lodging. Only in this particular case, the condo had a hole in the roof. And I literally, it was the middle of December in Traverse City, Michigan. And I said to him, what are you supposed to do if it snows? And he reached under the bed and he pulled out a clear plastic painter's drop cloth and he said just put this over yourself when you're on the bed i said take me to a hotel what do they need an act next weekend they, yeah in fact they had just had a job claude, claude stewart just dropped out if you want to go work the room i thought i took any good claude will play like claude will work a q-tip box if that's why he's great yeah he really will claude will take anything in fact he just gave me a gig the middle of december i'm doing in fresno where uh it's i um the guy just sent me the information i don't know but i found out that i don't get a hotel room oh cool yeah i can't wait to do it i I mean well my friend uh the lovely and talented and one of the other stars of roast battle olivia grace is oh she's the best she's doing her half hour uh, tomorrow night and i believe fresno so really uh well comedy central is uh uh, accepting submissions at some point soon so i think uh, you're seeing a lot of people I'm doing my half hour tomorrow night in uh, Ari Manis' apartment. 
Oh, that's excellent because he's got some space. Well, he's got a living room that he basically turns into a uh, smallish comedy club, or, you know, right. comedy room. And uh, that's it's funny that but that's is my idea for my comedy special if right. I'm lucky enough to get it. Well, I'm taping mine when I go to Fresno. I'm going to tape both shows. Yeah, and pull a half hour. I just haven't have to pull a half hour out of it and give it to him uncut. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, I'm not sure if they care so much about. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they want to see a, an audience in there, but I think they really just want to see if whoever is submitting has a half hour. Uh, uh, yeah, right. Uh, you know, and I just I've all you know my gimmick with my special if I'm lucky enough to get it is. You know, for 16 years, I've played in the shittiest rooms, you know, the, the worst crowds. It's late at night, and I want to do it at the comedy store if I'm lucky enough in front of six people at, like, 2 in the morning. That'd be awesome. Because it's like I was watching Sebastian's special, and right. it's mind-blowing how good it is. But it's in this huge, packed, standing-room-only crowd. And, like, in a weird way, I want the opposite. Because I think people get, okay, this guy has struggled for 16 years to get on TV. He gets on TV, and the crowds haven't changed. <laughs> it's actually a great concept. And you know what would be fun? If you can the laughter. You know, I thought about that. I've, I've gone through several, like Troy Conrad, who's the legendary for, a comic uh, improviser. For, Genius and, photographer. His like, photographer, his photography skills uh I'm blown away. You know, they always say like the, the great photographer, it's about being a fly on the wall and having that eye knowing just when to hit that shutter. You know, he's like the eye at the beginning of the twilight zone. It's, and to do it with no makeup. Yeah. I mean, you've seen the, uh, he's responsible for the comedy store uh, hallway series, which is a lot of the paid regulars in the hallway with these great shots, no makeup, no hair uh, done. And it's, he makes us all look like fucking rock stars. I told him it looks like he is a 40s photographer shooting through a filter. Yeah. Because his black and whites are so elegant. And he's just the nicest guy. Uh, nicest guy in the world. He had an idea of, okay, well, Earl, if you can get the original room, like you wanted six people, two in the morning, and then you pack the main room, and they get the feed, and the, so you put their laughter into the jokes interesting you know like not fake laughter right. but you know you sync up their audio with the video of you doing it that's an idea and you know owen smith had a great idea of the cameras on me the whole time so you never see the crowd right and you're probably wondering why aren't they laughing and then at the very end when i say good night you see that there's six people, six in, the people in there. It's really funny so i mean you know i just i know maria bamford did it in her parents living room just them. Right. So that's pretty cool. That's really cool. I, I like the idea of really having no laughter in the special and letting the people at home just right. laugh. And it's risky. Like It's very, yeah. I pitched it in Montreal to- uh, Gary? One of the fine, fine people at Comedy Central. Right. I won't mention their name because I don't want comics. I know comics would bug them. Uh, these fucking- <laughs> These fucking palms. I know, man. Uh, you can't tell them you know people. They're like, hey, could you get me a meeting with? Hey, can you bring me to dinner? I know. With? Hey, no, go to their party? No. I had this one comic. So I pitched him that idea, long story short, and he just looks at me like the weirdest look. He's like, <laughs> are you being serious? I'm like, yeah. 
And that was the end of the meeting. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, I've had those pitch meetings before at CBS where you walk in and you tell them what it is and they literally look at you like you just pitched them like a Hitler comedy. Well, that'd be great. I thought, you know, I mean, Gene Wilder got away with it. Well, I mean, Hitler was really the first bringer show promoter. He really was, too. Hot room. Hot room. It really is. Bring the family. Yeah, bring your friends. Bring your friends and family. I guarantee you they're not going to leave. Oh, that's hilarious. They made me play the Hitler. uh, I did the Hitler roast at the comedy store, and I had to play Hitler, of course. They always give me these fucking most unlikable people to but it worked. Uh, it was the historical roast, which are great if you've uh, ever seen them. They mainly do it at Meltdown. Well, you can do Mussolini now with the beard. Right. Well, now I have to shave. So, uh, <laughs> And on this, uh, well, I can't say uh, the show, but on a uh, on an upcoming show that may or may not be on television sooner than later, uh, I play a bitter late night comic. Oh. So they didn't have me shave. Nice. They basically didn't give me lines. They're like, just say what a bitter late night comic. I'm done deal. Are you kidding me? I'm good. Just why don't you just put a mic in my apartment and just yeah. tape me when I'm home. Just let me know. <laughs> let me know uh, when you want me to speak. So, uh, I mean, this business is crazy. What's know, the craziest thing you've ever seen in this? 31 years. Almost 31 years? Jesus Christ. I mean, what's the craziest thing I've seen in stand-up? Really? Bitter comics? I mean, I've seen people get in screaming matches with club owners. I saw I saw a guy show up to a show that I was headlining and started screaming during the show that he was supposed to be working that week. No kidding. And, like, like I, I mean... I, I was in Toledo at what used to be the Toledo Comedy Club. And I just started headlining. It's, like, maybe 1990. 697 and some local comic was like I don't know if he was booked on the week or if he just won I don't know what the hell happened but it was a Wednesday Thursday two shows Friday two shows Saturday and um I, he showed up Thursday night in the middle of the Thursday night show I've been on stage about 15 20 minutes and I hear from the back I'm funnier than this fucking guy it sounds like thousands of comics I would know. And literally, the guy who owned the club came running downstairs from his office and was like, hey, man, what are you doing here? I told you you weren't booked this week. Fuck this bullshit, man. In the showroom while I'm on stage, he's like screaming at the club owner. Now, as I'm telling this story, all these other incidences are popping through my head when you ask me crazy shit. Like, now this, all this other stuff is coming up. I mean, there's. I mean, I'm sure guys like you and me and, and people who've done... Oh, my God. I mean, uh, like, I remember a show I did at a cemetery. Like, it was a health benefit for renal kidney failure, which is what my dad died of. So I was like, yeah, I want to, like, I'll, I'll give whatever you want. I'll donate however much money you want. Uh, that I can afford to, and it's in a 600-person auditorium. Now, why they have that at a cemetery is mind-blowing to me. But I thought, well, this, that's weird to have a benefit for a disease at a cemetery. We get in there, there's two people in the room. Wow, that's fast-tracking. Two people. <laughs> and it's like... Jesus. And so a full comedy show was done. Oh. Ten comics, all, all oh. was bombing. Uh, my son, and I was pretty green at that time. Uh, the host is running around, like trying to. It's like, dude, there's two people here. There's no need to run around. It's just, it just, it ain't gonna happen. So I mean, I'm just, can imagine the crazy gigs. What's the craziest gig that you've? All right. Well, after nine eleven, 
literally like right after 9-11. I had just moved to New York a month afterwards. I went back home. And John Rizzo, the guy who used to run the Melrose Improv, who had went back to New York, put on a series of benefits, four in a week, to raise money for um, the transit cops and the, the lo you know local precinct number one downtown and all this stuff because he was involved with the thing that was going on downtown. And this, I thought, was going to be a dream gig. I'm not kidding you. I did two of the four nights. The, the, the fourth night was the room was completely filled with wise guys. And I love the lore of the mafia. And my brother and I, if we weren't Jewish, probably would have been made men. And I read a hundred books on the mob and the whole thing. And I'm like, really? I'm working a room full of wise guys? And John's like, yeah. So I quickly got out my pen and paper and I started writing some jokes. So I asked him, you know, now here's a guy born in Sicily, speaks fluent Italian, grew up in Howard Beach, went to the John Gotti funeral and knows pretty much what you need to know. So I said to him, can I do the following jokes? And he re reads them and he goes, yeah, these are great. So um, Adam Ferraro was on this night and a couple of other guys. And I literally, I got on stage and I walked on stage and I said, hey, this is great. It's good to be here. This is like, uh, this is like, uh, what, like uh, social hour at the Ravenite Social Club. A happy hour at the Ravenite Social Club. Then I get that, the John Gotti. Correct. Correct. And it, I'm not kidding you. The only thing I heard were crickets. And I did like one more joke crickets and i went no nah, this is really exciting i feel like i just got my button and from the back of the room in the darkness i hear yeah what do you fucking know about it <sighs> nothing i know nothing about it i'm a jew from jericho long island man i know nothing i've seen a lot of movies and i'm trying to make some jokes i'm not pat cooper oh pat cooper Right when I said Pat Cooper, they all start laughing. It was literally like the trigger, just like I said it and you went, oh, Pat Cooper. Right. Same thing. They all go, ha oh, ha, Pat Cooper. And I went, oh, you guys like Pat Cooper? Yay. So I like, I did a couple of Pat Cooper references kind of just to pull myself out of what I thought was going to be a tailspin. The show, if you want to hear the real, the story, sitting in the front of the room, this guy's cell phone goes off right as I'm trying to save myself. I pick up the phone. I look at the guy and I go, uh, can I answer it? And he goes, yeah, go ahead. So I answer the phone. And I go, yeah, who's this? And he goes, who the fuck is this? And uh, I go, what's your name? He goes, Anthony. And I go, nothing. Anthony told me to answer the phone. You got that thing? And the guy goes, yeah. I go, well, don't fuck around. Get the fuck back here. He goes, I'm coming. I go, I ain't fucking around with you. Get the fuck back here. He goes, I'm coming. All right, get the fuck back here. He hangs up. I keep talking. The phone rings again. So I get busted on the sketch. Later on after the show at the bar, I see the guy, Anthony, who invites me over for a drink. And he looks at the other guy and he points at him and he goes, hey, Freddie, this is the big, bald motherfucker who answered my phone when you called. This guy's fucking great. Freddie calls John Riz and says, I want to kill that guy. Really? Really. John Rizzo called me and he says, we got a problem. I have to go to the restaurant tonight and sit down and have a talk. Yes, I apparently disrespected the wrong guy. And what year was this? 2001, right after 9-11. This would have been October, let's say third week of October 2001. It's when I bought this condo. That might have been, seriously, one of the craziest things I've seen. That a mobster wanted to kill me for being funny. 
I mean, I had a similar experience <laughs> at the Beverly Hills Friars Club. Now, there used to be a Thursday night show there. And for a while, for about a year, it was the hottest room in the country. Ari David, who uh, people have a love-hate relationship right. with, because he's a, let's just say he's a very uh, right-wing uh, political man. Uh, he ran the room, and uh, he would always put me up when he could. And uh, I did a Suge Knight joke. And uh, this is about the time he got shot in the oh. nightclub. And, you know, it wasn't the greatest joke in the world, but it was basically he was shot point blank and the guy only hit him in the knee. And I said something along the lines of, how bad was that shooter? I mean, you got a guy that fucking fat and you shoot him point blank and you only hit his knee. After the show, this girl comes up to me. Let's say she was a woman of a ghetto nature. She's like, Suge <laughs> really liked that joke. He thought it was really funny. I'm like, oh, how did he hear it? He's like, he's in the corner over there. And he just looked at me and signaled for me to come over. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this is like when Suge Knight's, I mean, I'm sure he's scary now, but like, and uh, he just looked at me and I was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm like a kid right here. And he's like, you a funny motherfucker. And then he just kind of like signaled for me to leave. And I was like, no problem. Yes, sir. That's the greatest thing, I think. You want to know the truth? Um, Richard Pryor said that to me one night at the comedy store. I got to bring him on. Really? It was tag team comedy in the original room. And I had gone on, and I don't even know who I was supposed to bring on, but right before I went on, they came up to me and said, um, listen, Richard Pryor just came in, and you're going to be bringing him on. He's going to follow you. I said, get the fuck out of here. I can't go on with Pryor in the room. Are you kidding me? And they're like, yeah, well, you're doing it. So I went on, and I did my time, and I had a great set, and... I, there was no way to even be, how are you supposed to introduce Richard Pryor? So I just said, uh, folks, uh, the next comedian, there's absolutely no way for me to introduce him. So all I can say is, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Pryor. Yeah, that, I mean. Th that was it. And he walks up on stage. He was sick. You know, he was moving slow. And he comes up to me and give him the handshake and, you know, the comedian handshake and hug. And he wraps his hand around me and in my ear. He goes, you're a funny motherfucker. Isn't that great? Yeah. I mean, I brought up Chappelle once at the comedy store. That's a good one. It's the same thing. And, like, uh, I knew that his mentor was a legendary New York, uh, I don't want to say street comic because it's the wrong uh, word, but uh, Charlie Barnett. Right. Who a lot of people, uh, it's such a sad story about Charlie Barnett because uh, he was... Uh, an amazing, uh, legendary performer in New York, and he would fill the, uh, forget the uh, park. Down, it, I, uh, it just went where the arch is. Right. I, it's like the... Uh, I'll tell you in a minute, my pot brain just literally. Right. And I'm a New Yorker, and I lived in New York, and it's on the, where Fifth Avenue hits Eighth Avenue, and I, I mean, I, I no, I just... It's like we're street, it's kind of like out here in LA, it's the Venice uh, right. boardwalk, and people perform Like there. the circle. Right, yeah. and uh, apparently Charlie Barnett was the only person who could fill up this, uh, you know, like hundreds of people. It's Charlie's on, and uh, he had gotten an audition for Saturday Night Live, and uh, he didn't go to the final uh, callback because he couldn't read. And Eddie Murphy ended up getting it. basically getting his uh, part, but uh, that was Chappelle's mentor, and uh, I brought him up as uh, Charlie Barnett. Really? 
She's like, God, I hope he thinks this is funny. Oh my and, God. Uh, that's he a did the story. same thing. Like, how the fuck? I'm not doing the good impressions. How the fuck do you know who Charlie Barnett is, Matt? And then he uh, called me a word that I can't repeat on this. <laughs> my honky. Something along those lines. But flip it over. And I said, hey, can I call you that? He's like, no. No. <laughs> and then he's like, get off the stage. Yeah. <laughs> so, but like, he's amazing. You know, it's funny because you don't really hear Jews going up to other Jews going, yo, what's up, my kike? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I'm 48. So like, you know, and I told this story many times on the podcast before, but like the first time I heard the N word, I, I didn't know what it meant. So I said it first time I ever said it. One of the few times I've ever said it was in front of a group of black people. Cause I didn't know what it meant. You asked them earnestly. They, to they told me, uh, cause my dad, uh, you know, I played golf at Bel Air Country Club. Certainly, I came home one day. Dad, Dad, I shot bogey golf from the men's tees at uh, Bel Air Country Club, which is like a big bogey golf. It's like it's a pretty good. It's a big deal. When you're 13, you don't really practice. I just I winged it. And he just looks at me and goes, Earl, that's bogey golf. <laughs> that so the next day I went down to the caddy yard. I was so excited. I'm like, guys, guys, my dad said I shot golf golf and the biggest blackest caddy walked up to me and because my dad was the best tipper at the country he tipped triple what anyone right. else would he's like earl we love your dad but don't ever say that word again and i'm like uh why not ray <laughs> different era it's a different era you know when i was growing up on long island it's so funny um, I grew up in a very, um, how should I say, Jewishy and Italiany neighborhood on Long Island, North Shore, called Jericho. And I'll be honest, the only um, the only non-white person I knew was a guy who worked for my grandfather at the carpet store in Queens. And one day, this black kid shows up at my elementary school, and his name was Edgar. And I literally was standing behind him his first day. And I said to him, uh, hey, how you doing? I said, I never met a black person before. And he turned around and he looked at me and he goes, shut the hell up, you white piece of tar. Yeah. No kidding. It's like 1973. Yeah, different. You couldn't say that to someone now. I was trying to be nice. I didn't know. I mean, I didn't have a lot of experience with black people when I, I grew up in Bel Air. Right. I didn't either. I grew up in Jericho, Long Island. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, the only two black people, and I'm not trying to do a bit or be funny, but the only two black people in my neighborhood were Kareem and O.J. Simpson. Right. And, uh, you know, O.J. used to throw me the football. Right. As a kid. So I was like, wow, he's a good dude. Right. And then Kareem would jog in Bel Air. It was just, I'll never get these images out of my head. It, he was seven foot two black dude with the goggles. He jogged with his goggles right. on in dolphin shorts. Oh, I Nothing could just else. see it. I could just see Kareem in those dolphins. By the way, that's got to ruin your adolescence. I mean, I was just like, and his house, he had some phobia about circles or no, about corners. So his house in Bel Air was kind of shaped like the forum. Didn't he live in Ontello Drive? He lived on, I guess I could say where he lived now. Uh, he lived uh, off of Stone Canyon. Oh, it's off Stone Canyon. So if you're familiar. I'm, I, I know. I, I am because I grew up up there. Right. I mean, I don't know why I'm doing a Google Earth on Bel Air streets, but uh, <laughs> Stone Canyon is it's about a uh, same road that the Bel Air Hotel is on. Kareem and right. uh, me lived about a mile up from that. So, gotcha. Uh, 
It was a Did great, you go to Roscomare Elementary? I used to skateboard in the Roscomare Elementary. Um, right. uh, because, uh, not parking lot, but their uh, playground. Right. Uh, you had to climb the fence. And uh, I was really, as a kid, into skateboarding and BMX. Me too. Mongoose. You know? Oh, my God. Are you joking me? I, when I was in seventh, eighth grade, I, when I went to Hebrew school at Stephen Wise Temple, and we would bring our skateboards and we would leave. My mom would drop us off. We would literally, we wouldn't even go in. We would skateboard down Roscommere to the school. It's a very steep hill. Very steep, absolutely. And then we would we would skate, and then we would have to leave early and walk back up to be back up at Stephen Wise before my mom got there to pick us up. Because you know, Bel Air in the seventies and eighties was just like it's it's its own world. It was the greatest. I mean, I'm sure it is like that still, but the uh, Bel Air market. Oh my god! Remember the? I mean, when I used to go to my buddy Alec. Now this is getting probably in this material that people don't give a shit about. But my best friend lived in Bel Air, right by the Bel Air market. So we'd go there to pick up chicks. Oh. We'd ride our mongoose bikes because I thought I was Bob Hurricane Hannah. Oh, that's so funny. Who? You know, for you people listening, if you've ever seen like any movie that takes place in Southern California in the late 70s, that is really what it was like. Van tennis shoes and OP shorts. Oh, corduroy. Yep. Uh, and like this is kiss was huge. huge. I mean, I saw them in magic mountain. Oh my God. That was when, uh, what movie were they? Phantom did? of the park. Kiss meets Phantom of the park. <laughs> uh, I mean, kiss people don't understand how big kiss was in the late seventies. Like it, there's not a group around today that uh, Van Halen wishes they were as big as kiss when Van Halen was huge in right, the late seventies. Because when Van Halen was huge, you can name David Lee Roth. And obviously Eddie, Eddie Van Halen. Uh, some people probably could name Alex. Oh, I was going to say Michael Anthony. I don't think anyone could name Michael. Oh. <laughs> and I, he's like one of the greatest bass players of all well, time. That's why he's out of the band now. Then. Well, there's rumors <laughs> that he, you know, who knows? Uh, but Kiss, everyone could say Gene Paul, Ace, and Peter. Of course, it was the Beatles, John Paul, yeah, George, yeah. and Ringo. Even if you hated Kiss, you still which a lot knew. of people did. I don't understand how. I mean, I think. Uh, See, I'm a weird Kiss fan because I prefer their 80s material. No, you don't. I do. Really? I, you know, as a kid, I loved... Destroyer uh, Kiss and Alive Rock and Roll Over, Alive, Alive 2. Yeah. I actually prefer Kiss Alive 2 to Kiss Alive, which classic kids, Kiss fans are like, are you crazy? Are you nuts? I'm thinking that right now. I just like the songs, and uh, but the first Kiss album I bought with my own money... And when I say my own money, I mean the $20 my dad gave me <laughs> was Lick It Up. Really? And I'll, that was when Vinnie Vincent was right. in the band. By the way, that was also No Makeup. That was their first. Uh, uh, although I will say Vinnie had the coolest, in my opinion, kiss makeup ever. If you, uh, He only did like, I think about 60 shows in right. makeup. He was the Egyptian warrior. Yeah. So he had a silver or gold ankh. And uh, that's when I really got into Kiss. Like, wow. I love Lick It Up. Well, my brother and I were like, and this is like 1975, 76. As kids, we were like putting on makeup for Halloween and standing up on the table with, you know, my dad's ties and tennis rackets, you know, lip syncing and playing Kiss music like in the basement going crazy. I mean, it, you know, and it's so funny that, you know, Gene, Paul, Ace, and Peter are so different as individuals. Musically, they never should have been famous. Like, no, you're absolutely right. Which is like, like Gene and Paul are more uh, 
anal and structured and like we're gonna do this song we're gonna rehearse this bridge and ace and peter like fuck it let's just wing it right and you know peter was a jazz drummer or he had jazz influence like gene krupa buddy rich right ace was like kind of a i guess a jeff Beck, page right but sloppier and so like they never should have been as famous as they were they were just so good but bob ezrin i think really was the thing that made Kiss that amazing, you know, he was really the brains behind him. I think. and maybe ruined them with the Elder. Oh, interesting. Because that was their attempt at let's be like Pink Floyd, right? And I love the Elder. Interesting. I never think about that. Well, I mean, that was his thing, and I'm sure I, this was right around when the Wall by Pink Floyd was up, right? And you know, I you know the one thing I hate about Kiss, and this is what I love about you and I, like. I thought it was going to be a comedy podcast. Could have been. It, it, it might be. Still. Right. Who knows? who knows? I don't know. I got two hours on the tape. <laughs> and I have a feeling we can oh, wait, go longer. I'm not, I'm not just doing an hour? No, that's, well. Uh, you, oh, just kidding. I'm saying we could go two hours. I'm having fun, so I'm good. But well, I can talk about this shit with you. Right. And I don't plan questions, as I told you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what we're going to be talking about in five minutes. Right. But the one thing that's always bothered me about Kiss, and I think it hurt them in the long term, is... They never really stayed true to their roots. They would always chase trends. Like uh, 79, they put out Dynasty, which was basically a disco pop album. Right. Which is not their roots. But they also had their biggest hit ever, I Was Made For Loving You. Written by uh, the great Desmond Child. Thank right. you very is, much. I Was Made For Loving You, did that sell more than copies that. than... Be- really? Well, and then there's... I might have just misspoken. Shout it out loud? I think their biggest hit ever in terms of radio play and charting was the Michael Bolton penned forever. Really? Which was uh, off the um, Hot in the Shade album. Forever? Yeah, it, it really? was their highest charting because uh, they never had a number one song. No. But I think forever got to like number seven. Right. It, uh, MTV was still playing videos. As much as Kiss fans hate it, you know, I'm a huge Grateful Dead fan as well, and I love to compare Kiss to Grateful Dead in that rip. The Dead never had a number one uh, Billboard hit either. The yeah. highest they ever got on the Billboard national charts was number 10 with Touch of Grey. Yeah, which once again, I think was uh, possible it got that high through MTV. I think MTV had a lot to do with it. They were that The music had a little bit of an overproduced kind of poppy feel to it, so I think it appealed to a new younger group of deadheads whose parents were probably right. dead you know what i mean so i think that might have had something to do with it it I also mean, ruined the dead yeah i mean it's like uh another it's so funny how mtv like my favorite band of all time is rat everyone knows that mtv made them then would it would it really piss you off if i told you that i went to see rat in high school and fell asleep and i was in the second row i won the tickets from kmet well, thank you, Fraser Smith. And it actually was not a Fraser Smith thing, but uh, yeah, we went to go see Rat, and we were in the second row, and we got hammered in the parking lot of the Forum before the show, and just got all tweaked out. And I literally sat down and put my head down on my chest, and I was out like a light, and I slept through three quarters of the show. And that, you know, Rat, uh, people forget how big they were, like for, for for about a two year window. And then uh, they made some bad business decisions, you know, like they could have been on the Top Gun soundtrack. I think they, uh, I think it was Body Talk, which looking back would have fit that movie. Right. 
and they instead did Eddie Murphy's Golden Child, which was kind of a bomb. But you never know. I mean, you know, I at the time, uh, you, who knew Top Gun was going to be one of the top action movies of all time? Can I tell you that Please. the Golden Child is one of the... So when Golden Child was made, it was like 1986, I had gotten... This is how I started doing stand-up. I had gotten a job at Paramount Studios as a security guard because I was on a soap opera called Santa Barbara. And got myself fired from that for not knowing how to behave on the set or what to do. And I had no direction, no management. I just started doing what I saw all the regular actors doing. And the next thing you know, I was fired. So good for you. I got a job at Paramount and I met Mark Price. Skippy. Right, right. He's the one who started doing me. He's the one who started me out doing stand up. But for the two years I was at Paramount as a guard, I had keys to everything. So I used to go into the sound stages when they were shooting movies. And I will tell you that the sets for Golden Child were conceivably some of the best sets I've ever seen. Like They were so freaking good. I mean, oh my God, what they built. You know, it's that movie was like, here's the number one guy in comedy at that time. Uh, you know. Paramount gave him a five picture deal. He was the first contract actor to get a contract from a major studio in like 30 years. It's just one of those things where you're like, uh, you know, why does things bomb? I mean, he was at his peak in 86 in yeah. terms of his marketability. I mean, Beverly Hills Cop was killing it, uh, you know, and then just uh, that might have even started his downfall. Golden Child could have easily been the one to really, yeah, because it was a terrible movie. It really was a terrible movie. Then he did Beverly Hills Cop 2. Which we does uh, kind of like Rocky 2. It was pretty good. You know, I love Bridget Nielsen. and uh, Right. And that kind of, it's weird, the parallels in, in the mid-80s of movies. You know, I'm obsessed with the Stallone movie Cobra, which also starred Bridget Nielsen. Right. They met on that film, right. I believe, and they got married. But the, and I forget the exact story, but the script for Cobra was, a, I think, was originally the Beverly Hills Cop script. Really? And something happened where Stallone couldn't agree to do Beverly Hills Cop, so then Eddie Murphy got it. Did they changed the whole vibe of the, the script and then Stallone kept the script and turned it into Cobra. Really? Yeah, it's so a great story. Did um I might be getting the exact uh, accuracy wrong, but it was uh, uh, it's pretty close to that uh And did the same guys produce Cobra that produced Beverly Hills Cop? I don't believe so. I think Stallone had uh you know, it, there's so many like, you know, in Die Hard, Bruce Willis was literally the 7th choice. Oh, yeah. The, you Clint never... Eastwood, Schwarzenegger, I think at some point maybe uh, Stallone. Uh, you know, I, I think someone said Clint Eastwood. Uh, they go through a whole list of people. All right, let's call this guy. Yeah, so uh, I've always wanted to see a book done about, you know, famous movies and who was originally the first choice. Right. Uh, so, uh, like Van Damme was originally the Predator. The, the the person in, in the, the fucking costume. Right. And I guess he couldn't move in the uh, costume that well. So wow. they got the legendary Kevin Peter Hall. Right. Who died of AIDS in uh, 91 from a blood transfusion. Not from, from a blood transfusion. Yeah. I mean, you know, the blood was in the semen of the guy he blew. Right. So, yeah. hey, oh, that, by the way, that last line was uh, Richard Chassler's. Uh, I did not consent for him to say that line about. 
Kevin Peter Hall. Do we keep it clean on the show? I didn't. No, know. no. I'm okay. just. You know, I'm a fan of Kevin Peter. No, Hall. I know that, but like I said, no one's awful. You're still. Come on. He's been dead. What the hell? Even, Kevin? No yeah. one's listening to this anyways. Though. I can do Brad Davis jokes at this point, you know. Right. Uh, I'm more of a uh, Ray Sharkey. Ray uh, Sharkey also, one of my favorites. So hard to watch The Idol Maker, <sighs> which is... One of my favorite movies. There's so many movies that I like that just... I tell people about The Idol Maker, they're like, what the hell is that? It is one of my favorite movies. And you just look at him and you go, Cesare? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to get Peter Gallagher on this podcast. Because uh, I... Th- think the uh for those of you wondering what the hell is the idol maker essentially it was a true story about the uh, talent manager of i think fabian right and he the talent manager had all the talent himself but he didn't have the look he was kind of a you know kind of an oddball looking guy yeah with he if you look at the real picture of him you could google it right he had like he was a short guy a little pudgy receding he wasn't even as good looking as ray sharkey right Okay, Ray Sharkey Hollywooded it up. And uh, so he would create these stars who didn't necessarily have the talent, but he would tutor them, teach them how to get it. They became stars, and he was just like kind of like bummed out. And at the end of the movie, which I love, both guys leave him. Yeah. And he's just in a bar in Jersey singing his song. On a stool like... So yeah. if you like like underdog stories and it's kind of like, uh, I don't know why it wasn't a hit. I, I mean, it just. It was on cable. I mean, that movie ran for years on HBO. I got to tell you. I bought a thousand dollar laser disc player from Good Guys <laughs> to only watch that movie. That's hilarious. Because this is like, think about it around 87. Uh, there was, uh, the Idol Maker was not on uh VHS, it was not on uh, DVDs, nothing. <laughs> I bought, I got the, I still have the soundtrack on cassette. Oh my God. And I ruined it listening oh to that God. song, Here Is My Love. Oh, so funny. So uh, if you, and now it's on DVD, so it, uh, definitely check out The Idol Maker because it's, I think it had some comedy uh, tie ins. Like I always, I pictured the Ray Sharkey character as a comedy writer who's funnier than the performer he's writing the jokes for. Be a good remake. And Well, I think they tried to do a remake with Babyface. I think they were going to essentially make it a, a black version of The Idol Maker. It never happened. Yeah. But I always thought it had that parallel. But where... I like that idea of actually remaking it with a comedy writer. Like, just change the story a little bit, you know? Yeah, I mean, just, uh, you know, I had writers. Like Star is Born. Yeah. I've written for a lot of people. I mean, God, like, you know what's funny? All the people I've written for, the one person who would never, ever let anyone write for him was Mitch. Mitch was every single solitary joke that came out of his mouth. Mitch wrote. Well, I could imagine his style was so unique that it would be almost hard to write for him because it's like even though you especially you you knew his cadence and right. his brain process it's like he has that one joke about rice the grains of rice yeah uh, it's like i could never even though i know his style i couldn't write for him someone asked me if i wanted a frozen banana so i said no but i might want a regular banana later so yeah yeah, I mean, how could you like write I mean, that? You can't. That's the thing. You know, I was um, we were going to Grand Cayman to do two weeks in Grand Cayman at Coconuts Comedy Club, 
And he was already there and I was on my way down and I was on the plane writing jokes and I wrote a joke that I swear to God to this day, I can't sell it. I cannot sell this joke to this I'll day. I'll buy it. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you the joke. And the joke goes, um, if you ever get caught going through uh, airport security with LSD in your attache case, you can just tell them you're going on a business trip. I can't sell that joke. It just does. It's just, but when I was writing it on the plane, I heard Mitch doing it. So when I got to Grand Cayman, we were working like the second night or the third night. We we're just playing with jokes, whatever. I go, dude, I got a joke that I can't do, but you got to do it. It's perfect for you. And so I told him the joke. He goes, oh my God, that is perfect. I love that joke, Chastler. And if you think about Mitch doing it, if you ever get caught going through security with LSD in your attache case, you can always say you're going on a business trip. Like I heard it in that cadence, right. you know? So I said, you got to do this joke. And he goes, man, you know, I'm not going to do that joke. I go, just do me a favor. Do it while we're here. I just want to see if it really, if it works. And he goes, I'll make a deal. You do it tomorrow night. And if it tanks, I'll do it second show tomorrow night. So I went up and I, I somehow I slipped it into my act and I knew it was going to fucking eat. And they just looked at me. I go, I know. I can't sell that fucking joke. Hedberg does the second show and it crushes. So he does it the whole time we're in Grand Cayman. When we're on the plane on the way back, he goes, oh, by the way, man, you can have your joke back. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want my joke back. He goes, well, I'm done doing it. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh... Yeah, he would not take material. No matter, you could walk up to him in a room and go, hey, I got a punchline for you. He'd say, keep it. Yeah, keep it for your own. Act. Yeah. And by the way, if you comics are out there, if you're giving out tags or jokes to people, probably not a good idea to do that after you just bombed in front of the guy you're giving <laughs> a joke to. That's hilarious. That is, a, And what a huge comedy faux pas for people under five years to do. Yeah, I had a guy the other night, uh, you know, uh, I, I did a joke about, uh, you know, AIDS or something. Right. It's relatively funny. And the guy's a, I said, like, hey, I got a tag for it. I just seen him go on two before me, eat it for 15 minutes. It's like, uh, thanks, but I'm bombing on my own. I love these newbies. Some guy who's a doorman at the improv, he will remain nameless, said the other night I was sitting at the bar and I'm sitting with, I think, Gene Pomp and somebody else. And he goes, yeah, I just had a killer set at the ice house. I turned around. I go, stop. I go, you are not allowed to say that. He goes, what do you mean? I go, Saying you had a killer set at the ice house is like saying, yeah, I breathed air today. It's the norm. You tell people when you tank it at the ice house. It's assumed you crushed it at the ice house. Everybody kills at the ice house. So you can't say that. I go, the only thing the ice house really is good for, to be honest with you, is your comedy confidence. It's really a built-in beauty set if you're even halfway funny. Oh, absolutely. And, and so he starts arguing. He goes, well, what do you mean? I, can't? I go, just please, how long have you been doing this? And he goes, you know, a year and a half ago, I've been doing it 30. And I've been working the Ice House for every one of those years. So let me just be honest with you. Don't tell any comics you had a great set at the Ice House because they'll all look at you like, yeah, and? Yes, and. Yeah, they just want to, uh, they just, these newbies. I know. Well, they, they're all, I find the newer comics out there are like, are actors or fucking people who aren't serious about the craft. And they just think, oh, I just. I'll do comedy till my acting takes off. It's so hard to do stand-up comedy. But know? if you're in it for the right reasons, it is. You know, it, it's really. I mean, look, I I'm an actor like you, trained actor, studied with Stella Adler. I also play four instruments. 
I tap dance. I did musical theater. I can't paint. I can't draw. Nothing like that. But I will tell you of all of the art forms that, and I write, of all the art forms I do, stand-up comedy is by far the most complex, the most intricate, and took me the longest time to really own. Well, it's like, because it's literally you're up there alone, man. Unless you're in a duo act. Yeah, but even then, it's like, I look at it, it's like three art forms that you have to master to be good at the art form of stand-up. You got to be a brilliant writer, first of all, right? Absolutely. That in and of itself is an art form. Then you've got to be an excellent performer. That in and of itself is a second art form because you know guys who can write great comedy and they can't deliver it yeah. wind up being writers and producers. You know, they suck on stage. The idol maker. The idol maker, exactly. So you got to be a great writer, a great performer, and a great director. Yeah, you have to piece everything got, in the right. Absolutely. So those are three individual art forms that all require tremendous amounts of dedication just to be good at each one individually. Then you got to be good at all three of those to make one grand art form of stand-up comedy. Yeah. And people think, oh, yeah, I'm a comic. I've been doing it two and a half years. You're not even, are you kidding me? Going up once a week. Yeah. Like this guy who says he's been doing stand-up comedy four and a half years. I said, well, do you have 15 minutes? Killer minutes? He goes, well, I can do a half hour. I go, no. I go, the busboy can do a half hour. Can anybody a microphone and tell him to talk for a half hour? How much time do you kill for from the time you get on stage until the time you stop talking? How many of those minutes are killer? And he goes, about 12. I go, then that's how much time you got. Yeah. You got 12 minutes. Yeah, I don't think a lot, of, and you'll see it. I would love to be a fly on the wall at any network accepting half-hour submissions. <laughs> Looking at these guys going, are they kidding themselves? Well, I mean, I'll be honest with you. My, I think three years into comedy, I thought I was good enough to get Montreal. Me too. And, and, you know, and, and of so course. I sent in a, because <laughs> my girlfriend at the time uh, knew the head of the festival. Uh, she's in the music business right. and uh, they cross pass she said oh i can get your tape to the head guy in montreal like not there's no one above this guy he's the guy right and uh <laughs> i sent in a tape from the hot wired cafe <laughs> which was like a speed freak recovery they would they would all go get coffee because this was their new it's addictions hilarious. and you hear cappuccino machines going off people walking in front of the camera you know i probably had maybe three minutes of killer material right. at that time and i look back now I go what the fuck was i thinking yeah you don't know man you hope you hope a friend might step in and go hey listen you know if you're gonna do this at least you know go make a tape at the ice house but i was so well liked in the comedy scene that people wanted to see me get montreal even though i wasn't ready for it so they were like yeah this is great i'm so pissed that like First of all, you grew up in this town. My family moved here when I was in high school. I went to Van Nuys Junior, Van Nuys High School. And I'm really kind of pissed, I'm not going to lie to you, that I was gone for so long working that I didn't actually meet you until that night at the bowling alley with Claude like four years ago or five years ago. The legend of Canoga Bowl. Uh, yeah. Like that was the first time I met you. I was like... And Claude was like, how do you guys not know each other? You're like two of a perfect pair. Uh, you know, that's the... You know, L.A. comedy is like, there's so many scenes and clicks and, you know, people are in their own world. Uh, I know. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how we didn't. Uh, Isn't that crazy? Yeah, because I love Gene Pompa and 
you know, me and Claude have been friends for forever. It's like one of those things, like you're on the road, you're in and out of town. And then, you know, I do a lot of theater. So I go to New York and do off-Broadway shows right. sometimes. So it's just one of those deals. It was just like, no, we've never met. And uh, I mean, I'm surprised we didn't meet at a rack concert back in the day. You no, know, I would have been sleeping. Yeah. Well, I mean, they weren't <laughs> known for their live performance, but uh, I've seen the singer Stephen Piercy, who is a sponsor of this podcast. I actually saw Rat twice. I saw them at the California World Music Festival, 1978, and it was Rat and the Boomtown Rats and Cheech and Chong were the hosts and the Knack and Van Halen. And it was a crazy lineup, three days of bands. And I was 13. Well, that's uh, Rat in their earliest version. Yeah. They might have even been called Mickey Rat at that time. Ooh. Wow. Because uh, they had to change the name, I think, because Mickey Rat's a Disney character or something. So oh, that's why they're called Rat. Funny, two I was T's. thinking of Mickey's Big Mouth. I was like. Well, they uh, definitely had Big Mouth back then, but it was the 80s, different era. But, How did you start doing stand-up? Uh, my friends who at the time were all agents and managers at ICM, William Morris, Triad at the time. Uh, triad. Um, they were like, Earl, you're funnier than any of our clients. And, they, you know, they obviously you're working there. They have big clients. Right. Do just start, find your way for a couple months, and we'll, we'll take care of you. We'll help you. So uh, <laughs> I started and uh they literally all but one of them left the business to get into real estate oh no so uh That's hilarious. you know it, it, i had to go to therapy to start because i didn't it just you know you, you can be funny in front of your friends yeah but that's easy being funny in front of a room full of strangers who have no allegiance to you is a different ballgame. Hey, how you doing? Yeah. You know, you can do dick jokes to your friends. Oh, that's funny, Earl or Richard. But you got to get the crowd on your side first. How do you do that? Uh, have good material. Well, how, do you, I, how do you do that? <laughs> I still haven't found out. Uh, <laughs> no, that's why I was acting like a comedian for the first. Literally, I would go on stage and I would take the mic out and I'd be like, hey, how you guys do it? Like, Mr. Happy, like, this is what stand-up comics are supposed to be doing. Right. And I really thought that that was how to sell material. And five years in, I was on the road. I got taken on the road early, and by five years in, I was working 35 weeks, 40 weeks a year for John Yoder on the road. Still doing that fucking schlocky, hey, how you doing? Well, that's that what they like want in the Midwest. 1989, 1990, they wanted that. Absolutely. And it made me a terrible, terrible comedian. And I kid you not, man, I swear to God, it took me 15 more years to finally be able to, and part of it's therapy. And when people think, oh, comedians are nuts and whatever, there's so much insecurity that goes along with being alone in that boat by yourself, not knowing if a giant wave is going to come and knock you out, all those things that really up until my 20 year mark, I couldn't be that guy who was this guy off stage, on stage. Right. And only the last 10 years. And it's funny, Pompa and I were hammered the other night talking about this. And I don't me, believe that. I, I, it is absolutely true. I know that people think we don't drink, but we do. Um, I no longer take the mic out of the stand. 
because you're pretty stationary on stage. When I never was before, but when I stopped taking the mic out of the stand and all of a sudden I could talk with my hands and I became more animated like I was. All of a sudden I started to feel more like myself. And I'm not kidding. For me, it was literally that simple thing that now I, when I go on stage, you know, I, I rarely take the mic out. If I'm doing an hour on the road, maybe 10 minutes of it is handheld. Well, I mean, when you're doing an hour, you got to like, you know, move around at some at, point. At some point, right. But it really, for me, that that changed my whole act. It changed everything about how I came across on stage. And it took 20 years. Oh, it took me uh, forever yeah. to feel, uh, you know, my first probably decade. I was like, well, I, I got to talk about stuff people like. Right. Like, you know, to relate to them and then probably around the 12-year mark, I was like, you know what? I'm going to talk about stuff I like. And when you do that, there's that thing that you figure out. There's a way to get the th stuff that's personalized for you relatable to an audience. Yeah, like I talk, uh, I have like literally a 10-minute chunk on seeing the singer from Rat at the Whiskey. And like in theory, it's like, oh, Earl, you shouldn't talk about that. No one's going to care. Right. But I think the audience loves it because they see how much I care about it. Well, that's part of the thing. There's no doubt about it. When you make yourself vulnerable to anything, it becomes sellable to an audience. Which I didn't have the chops and the balls and the whatever else you want to call it to do that. Like, I can't talk about rat. No one's going to know who they are in 2015. Do you have any material in your act? No. That you, well, we know that. It's all borrowed. But are you doing it? No, seriously. Do you have any jokes that you're doing now in your act, bits, or anything that you wrote literally like your first year or two that you couldn't make funny, weren't sellable, were actually really well-written, but you weren't good enough to make them work? I do every now and then. I uh, recently, I've kept all my joke books. Right. Even from my first year. Uh, and Me I need to have all my comedy notes. Yeah. I mean, I threw them all away because I put this the digital era now. So I literally rewrote every joke I'd written and I put them in my iPad. Oh my God, I'm so jealous. Uh, I'm so it, jealous. Well, I just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a Virgo, so I'm very anal, and I just literally sat down for 12 hours and just typed out every joke. I'm a Gemini, I just like anal. Yeah, well, I've never had it. I've given it once, right. but that's another podcast. Wait a second. Um, and, but uh, you have stuff that now you I can do, sell. That I'm good enough to uh, talk about, and, you know, I had a joke uh, about Terry Bradshaw being the spokesman for uh, Supercuts. Right. And, and he has no hair. He's bald. Right. So I'm, and that was the joke in, in its uh, original formation. But now I, uh, it's like five minutes of talking about uh, the curious uh, choices for spokespeople. Like uh, then I go into Shaq now being a spokesman for a moisturizer company. Right. When in high def, he looks like, he fucking moisturizes with a cactus. Uh, so it's like... Black a, don't crack unless you're Shaq. Yeah. <laughs> or, or talk. Uh, yeah, you can have that, by the way. If you can put it in. Well, you know, hey, whatever. I'll I'm take just it. saying it's yours, man, if you can fit it in there anywhere. But I will say this about Shaq. He's an amazing tipper. Uh, you know, and, and my favorite Shaq story is my friend goes up to him at the gym one day and said, hey, Shaq, I just bought your shoes. I think they were Reebok or whatever. Yeah. Uh, they had a the the stitching came undone after the second day. Two days later, my friend had twelve pairs of shoes shipped to his house from Shaq. That's fantastic. So, uh, but it's just you know, I would think that Shaq's maybe not the easiest on the eyes. 
So I, I well, don't know. especially because your eyes are even with his dick, right? Yeah. You know, I mean. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'm good enough now to look back at jokes I wrote in the second year. And go, oh, maybe I could do that joke now. Do, how do you do the same thing? I do actually. In fact, the reason I asked it's funny because just recently I was on stage and somebody had shouted something out, and it just reminded me of a very, very, very old bit. And I literally looked at the crowd. I go, you know what? That I told them. You just reminded me of something, and I'm going to tell you. And it came out almost like it was just written. And I was like, wow, I could never make that funny before. You know, I just wasn't good enough. It was one of those jokes that, like, was so well written that I couldn't. It was like a Ferrari of a joke, and I couldn't literally tell it. Yeah, breaking news in the uh, Instagram world. Adam Carolla just liked your picture I put up on the Instagram. Oh, so. he's a good man, that Adam Carolla. So uh, that's all. There's a little breaking news there. He's a very, very good man, that Adam Carolla. Well, he's got the podcast world by the ball. He certainly so. does, man. I'm telling you something. Hopefully. Why am I here? I gotta go do Carolla's podcast again. Because he doesn't return your calls. No, I do. Not anymore. No, it's a cold business. It dude. is a cold business, isn't it, boy? I'm telling you. I got, you know, people who, oh, hey, Earl, you're great. Uh, you know, well, you didn't say that before you saw me on Comedy Central. Right. I, I got a friend who's now the executive producer of the show on NBC, Night Shift. Do you know Gabe? All right. The person who does the music for Night Shift, the legendary Cinderella drummer Fred Curry, has been on this couch. Okay, so... But no, I don't know Gabe. So I've known him since literally I'm 21, since I started doing stand-up comedy. And they're in their fourth season yet. I can't get him to bring me in to read. It's a cold business, it's a cold, dude. I'm telling you. I don't know why they'd, SAG doesn't give you a down jacket with your SAG card. Well, you know, it, it's uh, I've had similar things where I've uh, I'm just standing up because my uh, torn ACL like <laughs> it gets a little sore in the uh, cold here. Uh, now, if you want to toss me, uh, you know, you could end any time if I'm. Oh no, no, we got. Well, see, you're definitely a part two. We're gonna go for about another fifteen minutes. Sure. Uh, it's definitely a two hour. Uh, it's, it, we could talk. Seriously. I know both of us. This could be a seven hour it, podcast. Yeah. Uh, but I like to break it up in chunks. Because uh, I find in the podcast world, people tune out at about an hour and a half. In my experiences. Right. Uh, so I try and you, you always want them to want more. Not the feature acts who drive me around on the road. Oh, no. They subject me to podcasts for hours and hours and hours. Well, you know. Those feature acts are different. That, oh. that could be another podcast. I'm like, seriously, guys, don't you listen to music? No, no they listen to other comedians. See, I don't want to listen to other comedians. Me neither. Because I don't want to steal, not material, but uh, I don't want to take away anyone's thought process and put it in my head. Oh, I just don't think they're as funny as me. Well, that too. Yeah. I mean, I'm a horrible audience member because I just sit, even when I like. You sat in comedy clubs with me in the back of the room. Yeah. It's like the two old guys on. Um, Stadler and Waldorf. Stadler and Waldorf. And Cla Claude calls me Stadler. That's his nickname for me because he knows like for me to be in a room with a comic on stage, is it's going to turn into a bashing. And I don't like doing that. Like I, you know, I'm. Right, so I avoid being in the room. Yeah, and people are like, that's selfish. I just don't want to be a bad audience member. If Yeah, if I have to write, if I literally have to subject myself to watching poorly written comedy that's so projected that I could see the punchline waving its eyes coming up the street at me before the guy is finished with the setup, 
I'm going to say something to somebody next to me. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, it, it's like a leaking sieve of bad jokes. What am I supposed to do? Just sit back like a person who doesn't recognize terrible art? Yeah, so I'd rather not be in the room out of respect exactly. for, like, you know, uh, I remember one time I bombed uh, on a pilot for Barry Katz, and I cannot blame my friend in the front row. I would have bombed under any circumstance, but he was literally arms folded, just staring at me. It's like, dude, <laughs> oh, no. I could have been killing. He would have been doing that. Right. I was not killing. Uh, worst that I've ever had ever. Oh. But, uh, it, you know, so, and I don't want to do that. Like if you said, Earl, I'm filming my special. I'm like, dude, I'll be there. I'll be out of the room because I don't laugh. Right. And so uh, it's not selfish. It's just, and I, and I also have a mild form of AD, ADD where I like, I, I get, I can barely go to a movie because I just, right. you know, I'm like, so. Uh, so you'd be good if a comic just had setups. You wouldn't have to wait for the punchline, yeah. just set up, set up, set up, set up, set up. You, no, I you wouldn't be. I'd, I'd be, my, I got restless leg syndrome. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm uh, constant movement. Uh, you know, I, I got, I picked up a nervous tick from watching NHL games. Uh, you know, when they sing the national anthem, I, I I just subconsciously would follow the players rocking back and forth. You know, oh, that's hilarious. Uh, so, and it started when I saw the black garbage men in Bel Air in my neighborhood. I would literally, once again, I didn't have a lot of exposure to black people. I would see this black guy who was as dark as Dikembe Mutombo, and he was super nice, and he would always say, "Hey, Earl, what's up?" And I would stare at him, and I would just rock back and forth. He was like an alien to me. I'd never. And you were a retard to him, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Just staring and rocking and drooling. <laughs> well, it's like I went to grade school in Beverly Hills. Right. And I've been. You went to Beverly Vista? No, I went to Good Shepherd. All right. Which is now. Well, when I went there, it was called Beverly Hills Catholic. Right. It's now called Good Shepherd. And I was the same size. I, I've been this size since the fourth grade. Oh, that's hilarious. Not quite as muscular. Not as girthy, but. But. You tell me about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was dominating in grade school in any sport, football, uh, basketball, kickball. I would, I was like a rod. I would, dude, I was a kickball menace yeah. in elementary school. And Seriously. So the big red rubber ball. Yeah. Oh. And you just, like, I was <gasps> comedy kickball game. We got to get one going. That might be dangerous. That could be too much fun though. Also, I see it. I see tremendous potential. I disagree. It, and you know I respect you, but I, <laughs> over the last two years I was on the Comedy Store softball team, and it was a fucking disaster. Is there a Comedy Store softball team? Not anymore. So I have been literally calling parks because I made a list of all the comedy clubs in the city, and I figured there's enough rooms to put together an inter-comedy softball turn. Like, well, league. there is uh, improv Comedy Store Ice House, Ha Ha. Um, Laugh Factory. Laugh Factory. You know, there's, I think there was um, Comedy Magic Club. Yeah. That's, you got six teams right there. Well, I know uh, in the great Leah Kajanian, uh, one of the stars of Roast Battle and uh, great comic in her own right, she's organized, I think it's a four team. It's not necessarily a comedy softball league, but there's comics on every team and it's co ed. And uh, it, it's, she's an amazing softball player. Uh, but That's the, so hot. The Comedy Store softball team was like, I was one of the better players on the team, and I'd never played before. <laughs> I was the second baseman. Again, that's fun. You know, It was great, it's but fun. You know, the teams we were playing against were like, 
they all had uniforms. Yeah, yeah. Like, that you you joined a league <laughs> with the comedy store, and you were playing against like you know law firms that right. took this shit seriously. Oh yeah, and uh, like and we had some you know Britton Biddlecombe, who's right. a great comic. Uh, he was our star center fielder. He could track down anything. Uh, Richie, the manager, right? Um, he uh, was one of the better players. Uh, <laughs> he had some interesting uh, mental methods he would throw at the other team, right? Uh, and then we had a ringer, a shortstop. I don't know who this guy was, but he was like he definitely played pro ball. Oh, he's like one of those guys who's got like cleats. Yeah, he was like <laughs> Kelly Leak in the Bad News oh, Bears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He like, dude, you catch everything. I don't care if you run to right field to catch the ball. You're the guy. And we did a double play combo was he threw the ball so hard at me because i had to go to second base and my hand hurt for a week that's hilarious but i still made the fucking tag and i love that you knew kelly leak's name jackie earl hill jackie earl hill absolutely but that he rode the motorcycle i mean that was this was our i think his name was alejandro he was uh our kelly leak really and then uh, tammy joe uh, the comedy show right. promoter, she uh, set, I think, a softball record with 21 straight walks. The other team wasn't even swinging. She couldn't hit. None of us could pitch. So she pitched? So she had to volunteer to pitch, and she walked 21 straight batters. Well, you know, I, she is a lesbian and probably has an aversion to balls on some level. I, you know. Definitely a plate because she couldn't hit it. <laughs> but she did make, in all fairness, one of the greatest tags. Uh, I think Chris Porter caught a ball in left field and the guy tagged from third base and Chris threw like a Dave Parker like throw from really? the corner and Tammy caught it and tagged the guy I out. love that. So we, you know back in the early 90s every Sunday we used to have like 20 comics would show up and we would play softball and it was like Seinfeld and um, Mark Lano from the improv when Marco and the improv and Jake Johansson and uh, Alan Murray would come out and play and Norm McDonald and whoever was in town. And we'd usually get about 20 guys out and girls would come too. you know, wives or girlfriends would play. And it was just a lot of fun, man. We would just, we would play like seven or eight innings of softball on Sunday morning. People are smoking weed and it's just 20 comics playing ball. I thought that was so much freaking fun. I wish we could just do something like that again. Well, uh, who knows? I mean, the problem with the comedy store softball team was we would drop down every division and it still wasn't helping us. <laughs> Pee-wee. We were like, you know, the first season I played, we were clearly overmatched. I mean, we would lose every game probably by an average score, maybe like 25 to seven. Oh, uh, so brutal. But we had, like, you know, Eleanor Kerrigan was really good. Sarah Tiana. Right. Uh, Two scary women. Was great. Right. Um, Roy Wood Jr. was our first baseman. Um, and then uh, the rest was, like, the Bad News Bears. I mean, we had one kid who couldn't talk. Uh, you know, another guy would show up in his, like, lacrosse right. outfit. Had like a blind first baseman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, when I'm... Yeah, and I wasn't really that good of a second baseman in terms of my technique because I would basically stop any ball, but I would do it like a hockey goalie. Like I would be in a hockey goalie crouch right. and nothing got by me. That was I, my position, by the way, so I get it. Well, you know, it's a good position because not a ton of balls are headed second base. No, I was a goalie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, no, I was a catcher. I was a catcher and a goalie. Well, catcher in softball is a pretty good gig. We had Ryan Mervis, the 400-pound bartender. Yeah, no uh, one's getting past him. Well, he was great. He would hit the shit out of the ball, but he 
could barely he would hit the ball over the left fielder's head but he would only get to first base because <laughs> he wasn't the fastest guy in the world <laughs> yeah that sucks when you can literally hit the ball almost out of the park it should be a home run but you know you're getting thrown out walking to second base yeah well i mean these teams we were playing against like they would hit the ball you know some of the bigger guys there were some huge guys in this league that would hit the ball probably 50 yards over the left fielder's head. I those mean, softball guys, by the way, my brother plays in one of the leagues. They really take it seriously. Like those are like frustrated college baseball players yeah. who wound up going nine to fives, but Oh, that softball, man. They like, they're chewing tobacco and like, they're yeah. taking it. I know. I mean, they're all in like uniforms. Scary. Uh, and then Richie would fucking quick pitch him. Like Richie would try to get any edge. Really? And so they'd start getting pissed right. and like, He'd be like, fuck you guys. And then, you know, it's like well, they're killing us and they're loving killing oh. us because Richie's getting them on edge. So uh, and then uh, so I, I had to quit because I play in a, a ball hockey league on Sundays. Oh, I like ball hockey. You know, as you could see, yeah. uh, you know, the trophies in the fucking room. With the tra are, they, is it, are they using trash cans still? Oh, no, no. This is it's in a roller rink. Oh, uh, really? It's uh, I always try and plug them because I've played in this league since 88. It's uh, SoCal Street Hockey. Uh, if you're in California, you're looking for ball hockey. Deck hockey, as they call it, in mm -hmm. the back east. But it's a, it's a serious league. Like, there's not fights, but there's a couple dust-ups and... Uh, you know, we send a team to Vegas. Uh, teams really? come from Canada to play against us. Uh, and so I was like, Richie, dude, I'm in this serious ball hockey league on Sundays. Right. Tuesdays, like, it was Tuesday nights when oh, we play yeah. softball. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm not coming here getting in fights with other teams. Like, this is like to hang out with Eleanor and Tiana right. in a non-comedy club situation. Hang out with guys like you and Claude. Right. Just, I, yeah, I'm not. This ain't the World Series, bro. And <sighs> Terrible. I used to play ball hockey in Santa Monica. I don't know if you ever played in that parking lot pickup game that they have. It was, when I did, it was roller hockey. Yeah, it was roller hockey it, with balls right. and trash, trash cans. cans. Absolutely. I played out there, uh, but it started getting a little too competitive for me. You right. know, uh, but it was sucked because... It used to be fun. It's not fun anymore. Well, it got very clicky, and then I think some NHLers would come out, like Chris Chelios would... Uh, Oh, skate. really? And his brother, who kind of, I remember as being somewhat of a dick, uh, <laughs> you know, because he clearly was jealous of his brother. But, you know, in this parking lot in Santa Monica, right. he's like, oh, my God, that's Chris Chelios' brother. Steve, I think, was his oh, name. Oh, terrible. But, you, you know, we probably had two trash cans, which you would shoot the ball in right. uh, as a goal. Uh, but if you missed... The ball goes all the way down the parking lot. <laughs> but there was no barriers in this no, parking lot. So I know. You got to chase the ball. You, I think it was like, uh, uh, what do they call the uh, fucking uh, the houses where the lifeguards are? Like lifeguard house. Oh, yeah, the lifeguard stations. Like lifeguard station number four. Right. But if you miss the ball or if you miss the can, the ball would literally end up at lifeguard station number 14. Yeah, you're like literally all the way down the parking lot. I know, that was a big bummer. They would always have like a huge bag of them and they'd have guys chasing the balls and shit, but it got to, it, you know what happened? I stopped playing because some guy literally checked me into a car. Yeah. Like, and I was like, that. come on, dude, it's Saturday morning, really? Oh, we, Take it easy. we had a league like it wasn't a league, but we would play ball hockey, like sneakers. When I say ball hockey, I mean, you're running. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Beverly Vista, uh, which is a uh, grade school in Beverly Hills, and we would climb the fence, and it was full checking ball hockey. Really? 
And uh, I remember uh, Luke Robitaille's agent, who is now Sidney Crosby's agent, Pat Brisson, mm-hmm. he came and he played with us a few times. I love that you know Pat Brisson because I used to deal with Pat all the time getting Luke on Frazier's show years ago. Oh, Pat's the best. The best. I mean, I haven't seen him in... Uh, Me neither years, but Pat Brisson was the best. He wouldn't... He stopped showing up and I saw him at a King game. I was like, hey, dude, why don't you play with us anymore? And he's like, dude, you guys are fucking crazy. Like, we're checking people into the fence. <laughs> uh, one guy broke his ankle uh, and we had to like wire cut the fence because there's no way to get, get out. Get him out, so you got to get him the hospital. And I think Pat saw me check a guy into one of the basketball poles because oh. it, it was a fenced-in area, but there were six basketball poles, you know, because it was a basketball court. And I think Pat was like... Uh, pads or no pads? You know, I don't remember, to be honest with okay. you. I don't recall pads. Right. But, uh, I don't remember playing with many pads in Santa Monica either. Yeah. You know? So... uh Oh, you mean pads that the players wear? Yes. Oh, no, no one wore no pads. No pads. Um, I thought you meant wear the poles pads. No, 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 no. So I was like, you know, when you scare a guy who almost played in the NHL, you know. Something's dangerous. Yeah, because he's seen it all. Yeah. In the Canadian, you know, junior league. Toothless freaking yeah. guys with an Stick eyeball hanging out. And, uh, yeah. I think when I checked a guy into the pole, he's like, oh, I'm good. I'm not, you know. That's good. done for me. <laughs> all right. Well. Dude, I, literally, we could go on for hours. But well, thanks for having me. Seriously, oh, dude, you are uh, a mentor to me, and uh, you know, it's just you know, LA comedy is so vast, and you know, you know people, but you don't know them. You see people randomly. I mean, uh, next up on this couch, hopefully, will be the the legend, the Rocket <laughs> Roger Rod. <laughs> Yeah, now if you're if you're a black audience member in LA, you will know Roger Rod. But he's a guy who, once again, I mean, Roger was in my first ten years of comedy. He's probably my best friend in comedy, along with Chris Ramirez. Right. And then you know, I started doing other rooms. I, you know, I definitely don't do black rooms uh, just because it's not. I don't. I, it's not your thing. You know, I just don't think I have many jokes that they would find funny. To be right. honest with you, I mean, I don't think they would like my. Hey, I was watching uh, the Williams sisters play a doubles match. It turns out I was watching Alien versus Predator. Good night. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Last black room I did, I, I have a red car, a Do- Dodge Magnum. I show up to the gig in Compton, which was like at a Waffle House, but it was like a hot room. It was like right. the, it's like the, that room, I don't want to mention the guy's name because he's a total putz, but uh, by Magic Mountain where they turned a certain restaurant into a comedy club in the back. Same thing in Which Compton. I recently did, by the way, and had a fun time, just saying, but he is but and I hear you. total putz. Uh, and the guy's like, hey, we're going to put you on first. I'm like, no, I'm supposed to headline. Like, you got a red car. This is Compton. You're not, you're not, you're going on first. You gotta go. Uh, so that's when I stopped doing black rooms. Yeah, that's pretty funny. You weren't neutral enough in your fashion. <laughs> I'm a Jew from Bel Air, right? Man. Who went to Catholic school, by yeah. the way? Raised Catholic, born Jewish, right? Uh, but that's another thing, dude. You're definitely going to be back. But this is the part of the podcast where you can plug anything you want. How can right. people find you on Twitter and Instagram? Everything is my full name, Richard Chasler. So you it's spell at, it. at Richard Chasler, R-I-C-H-A-R-D and C-H-A-S-S-L-E-R for those of you who want to follow me. Please do. Uh, you can find me doing sets in Los Angeles, the Comedy Store and at the Improv. I will be in Fresno December 16th and 17th. You'll have to check my website. It's a new club. I don't know. What is your website? RichardChasler.com. 
And the month of January, I'll be touring all over the country with Nick Swartzen. And those dates I haven't gotten yet, but there's going to be like 20 shows. And I'll be in a city near you. So check my website for those dates as well. And if you say you heard me on this podcast, I'll comp your tickets. And that's, uh, it, for those of you listening who don't know the name of this podcast, it's Inappropriate It's Earl. Inappropriate Earl. Uh, it, please go check out uh, Richard and Nick. Nick, by the way, put me in my first movie role ever, Bench Warmers. Oh, I love that. He didn't have to put me. He, he wrote the part specifically for me. He's like, oh, this guy's cool. He's struggling. This is about 2006. He didn't have to do it. He did it. And people still come up to me talk about that movie. That's great. So uh, Nick Swartzen, Richard Chastler, two good dudes. Follow, please follow Richard. Like he's, he's a real deal. And I don't like a lot of comics because you know they're all fake, phony, fucking bullshitters. Thank you. Uh, Richard is the complete opposite of that. And Swartzen's like salt of the earth. Uh, helps out a lot of comics. He doesn't have to. He could just pick local openers. He he takes care of people. So does Rob Schneider. I mean, you know, absolutely true. Uh, and uh, too many people to uh, talk about nicely. Actually, there's not that many people. There's only about 10 of us. <laughs> you know, Gene Pompa's an awesome yeah. dude. Uh, Ian Bag. Uh, Ian Bag is takes guys, you know, I try to take openers when I can. It's yeah. you got to give it back. You got to do what people did for you, no matter what you do in your life. Doesn't matter if you're a gardener. If there was a gardener who taught you how to clip a plant a certain way, teach another guy how to do it. You got to always push that to someone else. Yeah, and be happy that yeah. you know your friends are getting stuff. And you know, people are so fucking selfish in this town. Oh God! You know, what you should think is, hey, maybe if Richard gets on a TV show, he'll bring me into the casting people I, and help me. I don't know, not necessarily the first season, but whatever. Like that's how I got on this show that uh, I can't really talk about right now. Uh, but like someone <laughs> at the comedy store said, you guys should check out Earl on Roast Battle. He's perfect for the part of the late night comic. Right. They came to a roast battle. Uh, it was only supposed to be one scene, a couple lines. And I ended up in like four or five episodes. Fantastic. All because of my friend who is a fellow comic. You might say a competitor. I mean, not that we're competing, but. And look, now he's on the show and I'm on the show. And if I ever have a chance to repay him, I will. So, uh, thank you, Jerron Horton. There you go. See, you got to be a good person in this life. You got to give. Just can't take in life. You can't. You got to. The more you give, that's for people don't understand. There's a universal thing called tithing. When you give, you get back 15 fold. But, and I don't know if this is part of that. You got to give not wanting to get anything Correct. back. Correct. You know, and it, it might. It just know, happens. I might hook Richard up with a gig. Richard might not be able to hook me up with a gig, but maybe Ian Bag calls me up, says, "Hey, I got to." I I used to not believe in karma and like starting the wave. You know, they say a butterfly is the cause of an earthquake because he'll hit the pond, he'll cause ripples. Those ripples do this. I yeah. kind of believe in that now. Totally true. And uh, you know, roast battle. I mean, like Brian Moses, he didn't have to put me on the show every week. He could have done it himself. And I've gotten so many things from Roast Battle. And then I hooked up certain people from the show with, hey, my friend's a casting director. So give in life, whether you're a comic or not. Give in life. Great way to put it. Give in life. Please don't be so fucking stingy. Don't be so bitter in life. Don't talk shit. Be at service to others. That's your purpose as a human being on this planet is to be at service to others. Yeah. Really. And give without the expectation of receiving. 
and you will receive a hundred times more. I love you, man. Thank you so much for having me. What have we? What, when did this turn into a Tony Robbins? I don't know, but it did, and God bless the listeners. Look, they got a little something out of it. How do you like that? Well, I would love to have you back before you hit the road with Nick. Love to come back. At Richard Chassler. Please follow him on Twitter, Instagram, richardchassler.com. He's like truly one of the good ones, and you guys know that I don't talk a lot about people like this, so <laughs> please become a fan of his. Support him. Buy his CDs. Uh, do you have CDs? I do. Please, it's worth it. In fact, we're in the middle of making a new one right now. And uh, can you be found on iTunes and stuff like that or no? It will be on iTunes. Yeah, it's going to be called Snooty Snoot. Cool. Yeah. It's the new bit I'm doing. It's not my signature. The Snooty Snoot Fuckity Fuck. The thing about the wine thing. So all my merch is now Don't Be or I Am a Snooty Snoot Fuckity Fuck. Well, please just get on board with Richard. Yeah. You know I don't. I get nothing out of doing this. I want to see Richard succeed. He doesn't need me, but like. We all help each other out. You guys have been good to me in the podcast world, and you've been good to my friends. It's like when Joe Rogan mentions my name, I get tons of followers. I'm trying to do the same for Richard on an albeit much smaller level. <laughs> I would take pounds of followers. The, well, it, I, I, I might say, get you five extra followers. Ounces would be great. If you get so, me an ounce of followers, I would be happy. Well, Joe Rogan's been amazing to me. Right. He mentions my name on his podcast. He doesn't have to. Now it's a thousand comics and he always periodically will say my name and it's, it's yeah, done. Well, so I try in my, you know much. what it is when you're good at what you do, you don't see other people who are good at what they do as a threat. That's really yeah. what it is. The people who are insecure about whether or not they're even decent at their, at their gig are the people I think who become more territorial and less yeah. giving and less generous. Uh, you know what I mean? And want to see more people succeed because they're really afraid of their own lack of rather yeah. than what they're bringing to the table in the first place. Well, it's like very similar. Uh, I had a, a couple situations in my past where my girlfriend at the time would maybe have a dinner with their ex not to, just because they're friends. Right. And I'd be like, fine, cool. Because I'm secure with myself. Sure. And it's the same thing like uh, the other night at Roast Battle on uh, Comedy Central. Thank you very much, Comedy Central. CC.com for the latest info. Nice. I was the house hater, and I brought my friend Encina, who played the Saudi prince, and he was great. He killed. Right. And uh, most people, I, not most, but a lot of people would be like, well, I don't want to do it with anyone. I want to do it on my own. It's Comedy Central, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you got to give. Whatever it takes to make it, whatever it is the best. Yeah, just it's just good karma, man. Don't be so bitter and negative. Yeah, you hear that, motherfuckers? Don't be so bitter and negative. 